Hey there, and welcome back to the Will and Rob Show. It is great to be with y'all. My name is Robert, Ministry Associate uh, and Communications Director for Ministry to State. Here with me, as always, my very good friend, Will Stockdale, also a Ministry Associate with Ministry to State. Will, it's good to be back with you. I feel like I haven't been on the show in a while, but I only missed one episode. Yeah, no, that's true. Uh, a lot's changed since you left. <laughs> we we got a new host. Oh, sorry, that was, I was supposed to announce it at the end of the episode to sneak that in. No, um, yeah, you had your Bible study last week uh, while I was recording with, uh, with Will Derrick, which was really fun. Um, but you guys are still meeting up going through Mark. Yeah, I had to go uh, teach... Uh, the story of um, Jesus healing the paralytic in Mark two, one through 12, which is my, one of my personal favorite stories in the Bible. So I couldn't miss out on the opportunity to teach that passage. Um, But it sounds like you had a good conversation with Will. Yeah. Yeah, we did. We did. It was, it was, uh, I mean, obviously we're friends and I get to see him around and, uh, but it was good to hear, hear him talk um, for, for the pod. But uh, what is it particularly about the story in Mark that you love so much? Well, you know, one of the things that I really love in that story is the crowd at the end uh, who uh, watch Jesus um, forgive the sins of the paralytic, uh, then sort of deal with the the scribes who question Jesus and their hearts on that issue. And then Jesus heals the par- paralytic. And then the crowd at the end sort of, I think, gives an exclamation that I think a lot of Christians um should feel like we should feel it in our bones, which is that we have never seen anything like this. Our savior is truly something different than the world has ever seen. Um, and I just think that that's a really cool uh, uh, note that Mark includes in that story that I think a lot of Christians can find solidarity with um, because that's who our savior is. He's, he's something we've never seen before. Yeah, he is. Um, that's one of the most wonderful things about reading the gospels is you, uh, you come across a man who is unlike any other man in human history, because he was uh, unlike any other man in human history, of course, but his, uh, his way of being, his actions, his purpose, his words uh, are so entrancing and transformative of the people around him that like Robert Lewis Wilkin, the historian points out, you can't uh, leave an interaction with Jesus and just go, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, for there's, sure. There's something bigger to it. Um, but there's there's so much we could talk about on today's episode. Um, so much going on. Obviously, the Olympics started. Are you watching any of the Olympics, Will? Are you an Olympics guy? Yeah, well, yeah, I am, of course. Uh, I'm an American Olympics guy. <laughs> Who let those Russians in? I tell this you, this podcast is unapologetically pro Team USA. Unapologetically, no regrets, and uh, yeah, and and really, really anti our Russian Olympic Committee. I mean, we know what you're doing. You may not have your flag, but we know. We, know <laughs> we see what's coming. going on. Yeah, we see what's going on here. We're we're not falling for this. They uh, so swimming the men's four by one happened two nights ago and America won gold and they flash back to the 2008 race with Michael Phelps when America came from behind in the last leg and won. Oh, that was such a great race. Oh my gosh. That was one of the most fun. And I don't know anything about swimming. I, I, I don't, I, I've never been a competitive swimmer. I only watch it once every four years. 
so I, you know, don't totally get it, but I, you know, we know what a come behind win looks like. And uh, my gosh, yes, it was so fun to watch that. Watch oh, that for on, sure on loop. The, the, uh, the thing about the Olympics that is so funny to me is that I end up watching all these obscure sports that I've never seen before and didn't even know like it even was a sport. So I know nothing about the rules. I know nothing about the way it's judged. But there I am sitting on the couch being like, I don't know. I think that's going to be at least worth a half point deduction. My, the other night I was doing that with gymnastics. My Kirsten, my wife turned over to me and was just like, what are you doing? You don't know anything what you're talking about. I was like, I don't know. I've been watching for five minutes. I think I, I think I have a good grasp of what's going on. Um, it's that great line from the Avett brothers. I'm no different. I like to talk on things I don't know about. <laughs> and I, For sure. Um, yeah, I did so the same we, thing with uh, golf. I've only played a couple rounds in my life. But like I know for a fact, what's you know, he doing hitting his five iron here? Oh, what is the, who is this? Guy? No, but yeah. Um, so the gymnastics, you know, you mentioned the half point deduction, maybe you're doing synchronized diving. I'm not sure exactly what sport you were referencing, but in terms of Olympics, uh, there was somewhat drama, uh, from last night and this morning with Simone Biles, which, uh, I mean, she is just such an icon for, uh, American Olympic history, not just gymna- women's gymnastics, but she's up there with like, like we mentioned earlier, Michael Phelps. And so oh, for sure, she had to uh, step down for what sounded like mental health reasons. And um, yeah, I'd seen some of her stuff. And again, I'm, I'm such a novice. I don't really know a ton about gymnastics, but she didn't seem as on. And so uh, when it, when I uh, found out that she, um, that she had, had taken her, removed herself from the team's champion or, or finals is a uh, little, you know, definitely drama, but um, still sad for well. sure. Yeah. I don't know all the details about it, but definitely going through a lot of stuff and, you know, definitely need to be praying for her and, and all that going on. So I mean, can you, can you, I mean, imagine being the best in the world, the best in your country's history and basically like whether or not people say, Oh, you don't have to be perfect. You no, know, you're fine. There's still that in the back of your head, like there is still an incredible pressure put on all of these. And and it's not true with athletes. It's true with everybody. You know, there's this incredible weight and burden that is put on people who are as excellent as that. And um, yeah, it's no, it's not surprising. Uh, And Mike, and then you remember how young these people are. That's what I was going to say. It's like, you forget that the prime like athletic age for so many of these sports is like 18 to 24. And I mean, most of them are, are literally children. Um, in some cases, I, I think one of those swimmers that won gold the other night was like 17. Um, and you know, it, it's awesome that, you know, they're great stories, but then the way you hear them talked up in the, in the media, it's always just like the entire weight of, uh, Alaska is on the shoulders of this, the 17 year old girl. And you're just like, oh my gosh, like maybe just like, let her be yeah, cool 17 year old. <laughs> like, well, we're not here to talk about this, but it does bring up the, uh, weight on the shoulders of, uh, adolescents and, um, minors. And that is paying college athletes. I was talking to a guy who was drafted by professional baseball team and I wanted to get his thoughts on it. He said his concern was, um, the pressure that it starts putting down one, one age range lower. So before you have an immense amount of pressure for people to go to college to make money in the NFL, now you have people in high school and middle school and the pressure to make money once they get to college. And uh, if we think that's not going to trickle down and affect families and kids, we're, we're sadly mistaken. You know, that make, that's a, actually a really good point. That's pro- this is probably uh, a whole topic for a whole episode because um, I've heard pastors 
and sort of church leaders lament um, like the effect that travel season for like baseball and other sports has had on local church communities because families just aren't present um, or at least not even as connected into the community as they ought to be because they're just constantly traveling uh, so that their uh, kids can play in these tournaments that, you know, last all weekend and stuff. There really is a good question about like, how do pastors uh, deal with this new reality of like quasi amateurism? That's really not, you know, uh, as amateur as we want to admit. So, but we, we promised we did not do this podcast in a attempt to talk about sports all episode. But um, what would be wrong with that? But you're correct. However, I do think how you set up this last section is a great segue for what we do want to talk about. As that's in, true. Maybe it is. Maybe it is a good segue. Pastors responding to people not being present to the sports diaspora that happens during, you know, base club, baseball, volleyball, uh, football, whatever, golf, you know, all that, all those seasons. I'm not going to keep listing sports. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the the. What really, what we really wanted to talk about was an article, really interesting article that you sent me last night um, about this. I guess it was not really like a a meeting as much as it was kind of almost like a quasi service, at least the way that it was described in the article uh, of Facebook executives and religious leaders uh, discussing about potential partnerships in the future, even something as sort of, you know, what seems shocking to uh, I think a lot of people like the idea of a, like a subscription based model for church where you would pay like a monthly fee in order to access premium content uh, and, and access to, to church leaders, which if you were to describe to me, like, like five years ago, I would have said that's absolutely crazy. Like something out of a dystopian Netflix show. Um, but here it is in the New York times and business insider. Uh, so, Will, you sent it to me. You, you definitely, I think, are uh, are interested in this. Tell me what's really kind of going on here. Well, something we've talked about before and uh, churches are dealing with is when COVID-19 hit, there was a big shift to going online, turning into an online platform. There were churches who were set up for that and they did well. And then churches that weren't set up that had more trouble. Now that there's a time where people are being to meet in person, there's a detransition for those churches, again, that didn't rely as heavily on online, it's easier to get back in person. Um, and then for those people who uh, were, were strong online, their online presence probably just increased or stayed the same even as the pandemic went down. But what, what was seen, I think, is people's lives went more online. People spent more time um, on FaceTime, on Zoom, um, on Facebook, on Reddit, all these different channels and platforms to communicate with people. And uh, in some ways, I don't know how you work back from that. I think people are a little more normed to interacting and engaging on uh, social media platforms. And so Facebook has come in and they want to team up with, with religious groups, religious organizations, and embed the religious experience online. This doesn't just mean like, Hey, we want to, one way is like, do, can churches stream their services online? Yes, that's always been a thing. Uh, and that will probably continue to be a thing. But what's, what's, what's happening now and kind of what Facebook is looking to do with this new relationship is for churches to kind of graft their DNA into the social media platform, um, whether that's through 
prayer, whether that's through worship music, whether that's through like little devotional videos or whatever, they want for churches to ingrain their life into that uh, for a small fee, of course. So for a small fee of like $10 a month to be able to have these kind of personal Facebook channel um, religious experiences online. And look, on the one hand, you can say if there's some way for people to to have their Bible or God's word available to them while on the go, that's good. Um, I don't think that's the language here totally. Uh, I think it is more of, as Facebook would say, social media and faith organizations, which the, the term faith organizations is a dead giveaway for what they really think that this is. And um, it's, it's furthered by the saying, they're they're fundam they fundamentally exist for what connection and so facebook views themselves as serving a very similar purpose but without uh, admitted transcendent aims of connecting people to something while faith organizations connect each other because they have a common idea of of god and i think that uh it's 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 a telling um indicator i think of what people might be looking for in their religious experience than maybe part of the, the problem facing the church. But that is, again, a need to, well, we'll get to that eventually. But Robert, as I've kind of rambled there somewhat, what, what, uh, what have you seen? And uh, what, are your, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, I, I think one thing that Facebook has tried to do is it's tried to find uh, ways to make connections and relationships consumable. And um, I think that that's really been the detriment of something like Facebook to um, society and relationships and, and um, just sort of like normal life is that it's turned uh, what should have been a platform for like, you know, connecting with people in better and deeper ways into a way like, how do I, how do I turn this relationship into something that I can consume? Like I, I need more pictures. I need more posts. I need more blah, 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 blah. And uh, go ahead. Well, no, I, I want to say here, there's a quote in the New York times article from Nana Jones, who's the company's director for global faith partnerships. I'm going to read this quote. Cause I think that it is very telling again, um, on a number of fronts It is this quote. I just want people to know that Facebook is a place where when they do feel discouraged or depressed or isolated, that they could go to Facebook and then they could, and they could immediately connect with a group of people that care about them, end quote. Now, what's first discouraging is that I think for a lot of Christians, that is how they view church. What is the purpose of church on Sunday? It is to connect and to fellowship with believers by hearing a common message and singing songs together. What does Facebook think? Uh, well, religion, uh, faith experience, religious services are primarily modern therapy. They are a 21st century, 2021 form of therapy because people need connected. We're social beings, whether that's through evolution or maybe through a design, whatever. Humans are are um, social and we need religious experience for us to get along. Uh, sadly, when, when you have a view of religion that is that, and you have a view of the worship service that is about primarily not feeling isolated, discouraged, or depressed, and those are things that can be addressed by the church. Those are not, those are not out of bounds by the church. What, the problem is that they're set up as fundamental, the fundamental reason. And 
just to take this to the Westminster Confession of Faith, which which helps us understand how we approach Scripture, is the very clear statement in the very first chapter that Scripture is all about God. It is first and foremost, through and through, from beginning to end, about God. It is not about us. It is not about the story of humanity. It's not about our sin, even. It is about God and his faithfulness and his ruling over all things and him wooing us back to himself, which then addresses all these other things. And that's a clear difference between how a social media company would understand religion and how Christianity understands its faith. That it is, our faith is about approaching a holy God who through the saints, through the means of grace, through fellowship, does address issues like depression, isolation, uh, disconnectedness, all of those things. But that's not what the worship service is first and foremost about. That's a really good point. I, I for some reason, I'm, I'm thinking of, um, are you, are you listening to the, the rise and fall of Mars Hill podcast? Oh yeah. I'm hooked. Yeah. Me I'm too. hooked. Um, but like listening to that podcast and there's a sort of maybe a related phenomena going on, at least from what I can tell in the podcast, what, what was going on at Mars Hill of what you're just describing is that it, it was a, mostly a place where people connected and heard a message about themselves that they needed to know in order to live the life that they wanted to live. Um, and I, that's, that's a real blunt take at it. So like, you know, um, uh, I'm speaking sort of generally, but what you're describing as a sort of God-centered a worship service of the Lord God who, who rules and maintains all creation and, and um, is wooing him, uh, wooing us to himself. That's a very different thing than a, you know, a Sunday Ted talk, which is kind of the way that the language that Facebook is using here is that this is a self-help motivational series, but they have sort of like this, like religious flavor on it. Um, and when you do think about church that way, church then becomes a product that needs to be consumed. And if, that, if there's a product, Facebook is in the marketing business. They, they'll, they'll happily take your money to market that product for you. And um, that's like why the, the stuff about like the, the $10 premium content thing is so weird because it, it betrays the very idea of what God, of, of what church and what God is. It's just a weird model that doesn't seem to graft well to what we're told in scripture. Yeah. And, and this is it. cynicism. It's objective. It's, it's true. It's in the article. Facebook wouldn't be doing this. If they didn't think they could make money. Facebook wouldn't be adding this element. Wouldn't be including this if they didn't think they could make money. Also something the article in the New York times talks about is uh, Facebook is trying to do a little bit of damage control in the way their reputation has been rocked a little bit, not only from uh, uh, the way they've been attacked based on how they people perceive their meddling with the, uh, or not meddling with the um, election, um, the vitriol, the, the, all of the um, misinformation that has been spread all, all over the place. So they're looking for a way to kind of save their face and maybe change a little bit of how people go to view, uh, go to Facebook to view it. But Again, the issue we have here is not really that people are getting religious information from Facebook. That's that's okay. Um, it is that one, 
be suspect of a very powerful big company like Facebook wanting to team up with religious organizations and what their ultimate aims are and how they're looking for and conceive of this uh, taking root, how it could transform people's experiences with church um, and the normal means that God has typically worked through uh, and on his people. Um, and then it, it um, providing a substitute that is not actually a same thing of the importance of embodied personal relationships. We are, we are, we have a theological anthropology. Yeah. I think what you're, you, you said a substitute, that's not a replacement. And, and you know, the reality is that after the pandemic, I think the question was, can you digitalize church? I mean, that, that has been sort of the central question for the last year and a half. And I, I think the answer, the resounding answer is no, you can't, you can't digitalize church, not in the way that it's designed and it's uh, prescribed in scripture. Um, there's no way to do sacraments digitally. You can't take a virtual uh, bite of bread and a virtual uh, sip of wine. It, it's yeah, it's not impossible. Yet. Yeah, not yet. It's impossible. And the experience of of corporate embodied worship is not the same as logging on to the same live feed. It's just it's just not. Now, are there reasons why churches would continue to to live stream as church service or to record their sermons and, and upload them as podcasts? Of course, of course there are. But I think we need to be really clear about, you know, the um the ways that we can adapt church to a digital age and in in some ways the christian church needs to be okay with the idea that we're always going to be a little weird we're we're not going to be as as more and more organizations take to the internet for efficiency for all hosts of, of reasons the church needs to be okay with the idea that we can't actually do that in fullness and then I think we need to start asking really hard questions about like the ways that we do adapt digitally. Are we encouraging people, you know, to stay home and not, and not come and uh, enjoy embodied relationships? Are we encouraging people to stay at home um, and not serve the local body? Can, can those realities exist at the same time? I think these are really, really hard questions that churches need to ask. And again, we're not talking about like, paying a subscription to get access to like a theological journal for uh, information or paying to receive podcasts. Um, I mean, th those are all fine and well uh, in, uh, in that space. We're talking about, can we actually replace, you know, that weekly reminder with a, uh, a digital experience? And I, for me, I, I'm, I'm pretty sold on the answer is no. Well, so then, okay. So um, going a little Jamie Smith here, you know, love and hate relationship with them, but the liturgy of liturgy, the liturgy of getting to the liturgy. As a kid, there was one way to get to church every Sunday morning. You drove from our house in Alito on Kelly Road uh, down 1187 and then followed that. And you know you went down through downtown Alito, tiny little downtown Alito over the railroad tracks. And there came a point where there's one road that we only really ever took when we were going to church, which meant that once I got there, if I had opened my eyes, like if I'd been blindfolded to a certain point that opened my eyes, I would have said, oh, we're going to church. 
And there is a pattern, a, a rhythm that was in place every Sunday with my family for getting us to church. And I think of the Psalms, like, let us go to the house of God, the great song, uh, we will feast in the house of Zion. There is a lot to the embodied practice of going to church, of getting there. And our computers are a place that are um, entertainment, their work, their social, um, but we, we don't really make a distinction. It's on the same device. We sit down at the same device to do a number of different things, which then kind of conflates a space with sacred and profane at the same, at the same time. And um, I think that's another, another danger um, to getting so much content from the same place. We kind of view it as an interchanged commodity, interchangeable commodity. Well, for sure. And, and then the, you know, the second question is like, is the product that, you know, religious organizations are delivering via online, are they um, uh, serving the needs of their subscribers? If you want to use that term. Um, what's interesting is that, you know, as, as we've spent basically the last year and a half, mostly a, a lot of us, you know, for a large part of the time relegated to online service, uh, the answer was that it just wasn't. I mean, you pointed out that that um, uh, I think you it was in the Wall Street Journal that the number of calls and requests of congreg congregants of churches and their need for care is just like exploding. And you know, you have the numbers that there in in the article that sort of back that up. But like we sort of just know that just talking to people. I mean, that's the the story that I hear. In, in talking with folks about how this, this last year has been is that, you know, a lot of people, it's been really hard. It's been hard to be isolated. It's been hard to not have their normal rhythms of life, their normal connection points with other people and with other communities. Not having those things is just really detrimental for uh, spiritual, uh, psychological, and physical health. Yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting. You bring up the article, that article from the Wall Street Journal, Tuesday morning, uh, is something of a foil to the project proposed by Facebook. Uh, we've spent our whole lives online this past um, year and a half, and people are very lonely and burned out and tired of it. And so the suggestion is more of that. I don't think that's going to necessarily help. Uh, it'll probably just get people in their own little clicks again, um, which is a whole thing, right? You never really know where someone is when they're on their phone. Like they could be anywhere in the world while they're on. And so they could, on anyways, mixing all these things, but this article from the Wall Street Journal, uh, this guy who's uh, he's a, he's a reverend at um, St. Mark's Episcopal Church in Foxborough, Massachusetts, and he's just one example, probably among a ton of pastors who have said the past year that his text messages, phone calls, emails have increased twentyfold, um, which explains why pastors are so tired at this point. Have received an inundation of uh, contacts saying, "I need prayer." In, in this suite that he cites it, he says, you know, the typical thing is, hi, pastor, I'm sure you're really busy, but do you have time for a conversation? And that kind of thing just like, kind of thing kind of breaks your heart. You know, I, I don't know who sent that, but like you see this sweet person who's like, hey, I don't want to be a nuisance, but I'm really hurting. Um, and there's a lot of that going around. And I'm really thankful for my pastor who preached a sermon yesterday talking about James 4 and praying for each other, the importance of praying for each other for healing and um you know, there is this calling of us on the church. And I think for those of us who are listening to this podcast, those of us who are attending church, to 
to pay attention to the needs of those around us who is who is feeling isolated, disconnected, um, not just older people or, or families, but peers, and what can we do for them? And maybe approaching our pastors and saying, hey, we think this is probably an issue. How can we help? What is something we can do to come alongside you? Because look, a pastor who has increased 20-fold, just there is no way that he can handle all that. There's no way that that's that's possible. And so um, the pastor needs for the saints to come alongside other saints and to nurture and admonish and love on and care for. And as, as we continue to meet in person and, and a lot of churches are a lot further along than other churches, but this kind of health for the future is that it's an exciting time to think about how much we can care for people. The sensitivity I think we have right now to being cared for is pretty high because it has been really shut down for at least people in the DC area for so long. And so when people do offer it, it's like, oh my gosh, I'm going to cry. Um, it, it's a little emotional. And as Christians, we get to, going back to what Tommy Keene said, the, the spiritual gift of hospitality and uh, how we can we can enact and participate in that. Yeah, I think you, you bring up a good point, which is that there's so much opportunity because the, the barriers to entry are so low. I think, whereas in the past, before the pandemic, there was all of this, like, how do we care more? How do we care more? And it was like, we need to reach more people. And so there was always like, you need to invest in all this AV equipment. You need to get a really sleek production team and you need to have the, like the right guests. And you need to like the, in the average, like what you're talking like the average saint is like, I can't do all that. Like, I don't have time. I don't have the money. I don't have the resources. But like now, post-pandemic, it's like, how? what's the best way we can care for people? It's like, you can show up to your like neighborhood event and like, just talk to somebody. Um, you can knock on your neighbor's door and like offer them a meal. Like th- there's all these like things that we can do that can demonstrate this sort of profound level of care. And it requires almost nothing out of us uh, in terms of like uh, a heavy ask of resources or finances or things like that. And, and I think that's just a really wonderful opportunity. Um, and I think probably brings the church way closer to its roots of like what uh, it, it was intended to do in terms of affecting change in, in our local communities. Uh, and that's really exciting. And I think a lot of Christians should be really hopeful uh, for that future. Yeah. Amen. The communal aspect of the congregation has been emphasized. It has been um, highlighted and we see it and feel it. And with these two articles, the one from New York times and one from the wall street journal, seeing a lot of uh, opportunity and calling to, to live out the great commission, um, the making disciples aspect of it. And that happens over meals that happens going to movies, whatever, going to church. Um, so yeah, yeah. There, there should be a lot of opportunities for us to do some fun and exciting things in these well, going forward, not even any set amount of time. For sure. Well, cool. I, I think this has been a really helpful conversation, especially as I think about, you know, um, how am I going to care for my neighbor in a post-pandemic landscape? How, how can I show care for him and her? Um, and I think uh, also just like, you know, as somebody who's coming into church leadership, God willing, you know, like how will we think about this uh, if the Lord calls us to plant churches or to pastor churches? How, how will we think about the ways that our church interacts with the digital space? And I, I think, you know, it's going to be interesting to see, you know, 20, 30 years from now, 
uh, pastors in our generation, you know, being asked about how, how did church work in a, in a, in a pandemic? How did the church respond to the digital era? era? And it's going to be interesting to hear um, a lot of those perspectives and, and some of the lessons that we took away. Um, I think some of them are starting to, to come to the surface, but I think still there's more to uncover there uh, as we get more and more removed uh, from, this, from this period. Will, well, thank you so much for this. Uh, this has been a really awesome conversation. Um, as always, uh, you can follow us on Twitter. I'm at RD Hassler. Will's at Stockdale. Will, make sure to uh, leave us a review, subscribe to the show. I think we're not a church service, but I think we can go ahead and promise that we're never going to charge anybody for access to this content. No, no monthly fee for the Will and Rob show. I mean, it, it would be a real windfall for us, <laughs> but uh, yeah, we probably shouldn't. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, uh, be comforted, valuable listener. Uh, And as always, uh, make sure to check out ministryofstate.org. And with that, we will see you guys again next week.